0: I wanted to start off with a little story about uh, Cameron and me, and she's not here to hear it, so I can talk about her like she's not here. Um, She sometimes gets embarrassed of this story, but um, almost nine years ago to the day, Cameron and I had been dating about two years, and uh, we we knew we wanted to get married eventually, but we kind of thought it would be a long way off, and so um, we were out to dinner one night at this Mexican food restaurant. Um, It's a celebrity place in Oklahoma called Ted's Escondido. We're sitting there eating and Cameron says to me, she said, do you love me? And I'm kind of taken off guard and I'm like, yeah, you know, I love you. You know, I always tell you I love you. And she says, do you want to be married to me? And I'm like, yeah, of course I do. Um, you know, we would kind of talked about it for a while that we wanted to end up married. Um, and she said, well, what about this summer? And I'm just like, what? <laughs> are, you, are you proposing to me right now? I'm, I um, Said, let's do it. So uh, we quickly paid for the check and we headed straight to the ring store. And uh, they were closed, but they let us in. And we went shopping for rings, and um, that was it. We were we were together. It was it was a done deal. Um, but not quite yet. So we still needed to officially get engaged. Um, so she wanted for, to me for me to propose to her officially. So. Um, I tried my best to get the ring as quickly as possible and plan this surprise engagement. Um, of course she knew it was coming um, so I had family and friends around and we officially got engaged so, um, so that really was it you know we were together we were it was it was done um, but still not quite yet we still had to officially go to get married. Um, so it was about six months later At Bethany Free Will Baptist Church in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, we officially tied the knot and sealed our covenant of marriage. Um, So the passage we'll look at today has that exact same element to it. It's the already but not yet. And this is often seen in Scripture, but it's obviously much better than the example I shared. We'll look at what the Bible teaches about what has already happened to you as a born-again believer in Jesus and what has not yet happened to you. So our text comes from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 20. So please open up with me there. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, So we'll look at four things we see in this passage today. Number one, the already and not yet. Number two, reconciled to God. Number three, the ministry given to us. And number four, the sinner's responsibility. So in this passage, Paul starts out by saying, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you're a born-again believer in Christ, you are a new creation. You're fundamentally and profoundly different from what you were before. There's a change that takes place inside of you. So, Christian, I urge you to believe this, to cling to this true, that you are a completely different person and see yourself as the new creation that you are. But this kind of begs the question, sometimes we still sin, right? Right. Sometimes that old self still creeps into us and pokes its head up. So what's up with this? Has the old self passed away or not? Am I a new creation or am I still that same old person with maybe a little bit better attitude? So this is where I want to look at the idea of already and not yet. This is something we see time and time again in the scriptures, especially in regard to the kingdom of God. So for a long time amongst theologians, this was a big debate whether the kingdom of God had already come in Jesus or if it was yet to come. And there was actually a Baptist theologian named George Ladd. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he helped greatly in resolving this tension between these two opposing ideas. He said this isn't necessarily an either or, it's a both and, the already, sorry, the, the kingdom has both already come and it is yet to come. So um, he was able to point out through Scripture that it was was in fact both, and these aren't at odds with each other. So let's look at just a few places in Scripture where this kind of plays itself out. And one is in Luke, starting in Luke 17, uh, verse 21. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he says, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So he's, he's talking about himself here. He says, the kingdom is right here. I, I am the kingdom. I'm, I've brought the kingdom of God right in the middle of you. Um, so we see that through Jesus' miracles and all the other things he did, healing people with his words, he showed that the kingdom was in fact right amongst them. Um, so Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God. But then right after this in Luke 22, verse 18, he tells them that the kingdom has not yet come. Um, he says, I will drink of the fruit of the vine. Sorry, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So we're sitting here kind of scratching our heads, huh? You, you just said the kingdom of God is here. And then he says, well, I won't drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So was he saying that the kingdom of God wasn't here yet? Um, what he is saying is that the kingdom of God has come in the per- person and work of Christ, but it hasn't come in its full extent. He said, this is not all there is. Even though it was a glorious event for all time, Jesus' perfect life and his dying on the cross and the resurrection, we are promised that there is even more to come. And this is partially why it was so hard for the Jews to accept that Jesus was the Christ. Because for all time, they had expected this Messiah to come. They had expected him to come in full power and just overthrow everything in their way, and for him to rule for all time and to establish his reign on earth. But Jesus didn't look like that, did he? He came as the humble servant, even going so far to wash his disciples' feet, something that a, a Messiah ruler would never do, something that seemed absolutely crazy to them. He even associated with the lowly, diseased people who no one would even dare to touch. He even had conversations with Samaritan women. and This is not at all what they saw coming. So again, George Ladd, who I mentioned a minute ago, said this. He said, The mystery of the kingdom is fulfillment without consummation. The mystery of the kingdom is fulfillment without consummation. So we had these people over here arguing whether the kingdom had already come or was yet to come. And he he showed them that, in fact, these, these are not at odds with each other. These are just two dimensions of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin. So such an appropriate way to put it, he said, fulfillment. Jesus came and perfectly fulfilled every prophecy from the Old Testament about the Messiah, even if it didn't look exactly like how they thought it would look. But without consummation, Jesus was not coming to rule once and for all. He was not coming to put everything under his submission and under submission to God. We know that that won't happen happen until he returns for the second coming. So this is why we read things that are in fact true in the Bible, such as if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, and sometimes we don't feel like new creations. There's a tension there, and often I think this is a stumbling block not only for Jews, but for um, non-believers in our world. They, they see us not living like new creations, that we are supposedly to be. Um, and this puts a real roadblock in them receiving Christ, because they say, yeah, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. You, you say you're different in Christ and born again, but you sure don't act like it. But we already are new creations. But we won't see completion of this until we meet our Savior face to face. Let me give another example from Colossians, where in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And he goes on in chapter 3 to say, For you have died, And your life is hidden with Christ in God. So in those two verses, we see that we've been delivered from darkness. It's over. It's a done deal. We are delivered from darkness. So we're out of the darkness and into the kingdom of his son. We see we've died to sin. We're with Christ. But then just two verses later in chapter 3, Paul goes on to give this command. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So we can see that there's a tension there. We are in Christ. All these things are true. We are hidden with him, and that's secure. But then we still have the command to continually put to death sin, which means that it hasn't been fully put to death yet, right? There's a real and ongoing battle against sin in our lives, which we all know experientially to be true. Every day, if we are striving to be a Christian, we're fighting against sin. This is why we're still struggling against our past sins. It's not like we become a Christian and all of a sudden everything is perfect and we we don't struggle with sin anymore. So this is why, even though we have died to sin, like we read in uh, Romans 6, Even though we're not enslaved to sin, also like we read in Romans 6, we must continue to fight against sin and struggle against it. But I want to encourage you for just a second here. The good news of the gospel is that even if in this life we will never be completely free from temptation, even though Satan will never give up on trying to snatch us away from our Savior and from our God, Sin and Satan do not have dominion over us. That means they do not have rule over us. They they do not have the final word, and they won't dominate us. If we are in Christ, we are no longer slaves, but we are set free from the power of sin. Amen? This is a battle we can win, unlike someone who is not in Christ and they're sin slave and they are necessarily held captive to obey the desires of sin. So if someone is not a Christian, even though they might want to overcome certain sins, we will never have the ability to do that because we are the slave of sin. But Christian, you are a new creation. That old self has died, and you have been raised again with Christ. So we must believe this. We must live this out. In a sense, we could say, be who you already are. You are a new creation. In Christ, we go from a slave to sin leading to death, and we become a slave to righteousness, bearing fruit that leads to eternal life. Our desires change. Our heart towards people changes. Our, our love for our family members changes. The things that give us joy change. So I want to sum up this idea with a quote from Daniel Dunlop. He was writing for Table Talk magazine, kind of a long quote, but I just thought it uh, summed up this idea really well. He says, Already but not yet describes the tension between the benefits of redemption already experienced in this life and those benefits which await us at the consummation. Christians enjoy the <laughs> all-readiness of the atonement, remission of sins, adoption as children, the indwelling holy spirit, etc. <laughs> However, there is a sense in which we will not see these realities in totality until the last day, 1 John 3:2. And so they always remain objects of faith. For instance, the believer already has eternal life, John 5:24, but he is not yet physically resurrected. Likewise, the church is a fellowship of persons who are both new creatures in Christ 2 Corinthians 5.17, and still imperfect sinners. We await our glorification and the destruction of our sinful natures in the last day. The church enjoys the all-readiness of the community of the redeemed, but her not yetness reminds her to uphold her purity through discipline. She must guard against false teachers, immorality, and apostasy. Christians should be dealt with as forgiven sinners, neither above reproach nor wholly incapable of any good. So I want to return to my engagement example. We all know that marriage engagements sometimes don't make it, right? They don't end well. We've possibly all seen them broken off before. Sometimes they end in heartbreak and don't make it all the way to the altar. This great hope that we have of fulfillment in a spouse is crushed and shattered. And people are left with sadness. Even though we thought it was a done deal, it wasn't. But the, and also the, <laughs> the Warriors, who last year had the best team of all time, and all the, the, player, the best players of all time, thought it was a foregone championship. Um, it didn't quite end like everyone thought it would, right? But thanks be to God that the God we worship and learn about in the Bible is not like that. When he makes a promise, he absolutely keeps it. When he gives us a done deal promise in his word and puts his stamp on it, even ones that we don't see perfectly right now, that we don't see them perfectly fulfilled yet, we can stake everything we have on the fact that it's coming. And there's nothing we or anyone else can do to thwart God's plan. So remember a few weeks back in Joshua 6, We heard about the Israelites. God gave them the command to march around the walls of Jericho for seven days, and God gave them the promise that he would make the walls fall flat, and he would give them a a sure victory. So we saw that God was fighting the battle for them, and he he gave them a promised victory, but in the meantime, he called them to obey, and even obey something they didn't quite understand. He said to march around and um, don't, don't yell with your voices until on the seventh day when he called them to uh, cry aloud and overtake the city. Um, and it's the, the same with us. He, he tells us that we have an assured victory in him, um, but for the meantime, he calls us to obey. And how is this done? How do we obey God? Is it just more willpower that we have? Well, this is done through the gift of the Holy Spirit working in us. Romans 8:13 says this says, "For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Putting to death the deeds of the body is thus done by the Spirit. Um, what a gift we have as Christians. We know that God has given us the Holy Spirit, to help us to live these desires that we have to please him. Again, we see in Ephesians 4, 23 to 24, it says, Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The Holy Spirit is doing something in you, Christian. He's growing you into this new creation that you already are, through the Holy Spirit working in you. So let's move on to our next point. Reconciled to God, which is really central to this entire passage. God reconciling people to himself. We've seen that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And we see next that this is God's doing 100%. I could spend a lot of time on this, but I'm not going to today. But we see plainly here, it says in this passage, this is all from God. We didn't make ourselves new creations. He did. He did all of the work. So I'll just start by defining reconcile. To reconcile means to restore a relationship with someone. This is something we kind of understand in our vocabulary, but I think it's helpful to start off by defining the word. So... To reconcile is to restore a relationship with someone. And we see in this passage that that's what God does with us. He reconciled us to himself through Jesus. He took what was a completely broken relationship with no hope of being repaired on our end because we were the ones who completely shattered it and made it broken. It was none of God's doing to to cut us apart from him. But he took that relationship with no hope of coming back together, and he made it right. He brings us into a relationship with him. We have the gift that we can actually know him personally. We can know the God who created this whole world. And this is something so starkly different between Christianity and all the other world religions. And it's shocking to people when they hear that we can have a relationship with the God of this universe. So before coming here, Cameron and I were in Brussels, Belgium, for almost four years. Most of you probably knew that already. But um, our aim there was to share the truth of Jesus with Muslims. Um, And if you've ever, um, if you're very familiar with Islam, you know that um, Muslims are very, very um, aware of their sin. Um, So... Muslims, when you ask them about their sin, they are very, very aware of their sin. They have an acute realization and recognition of their sins. But they'll go on to tell you that Allah really doesn't provide much of a way to be saved from their sin. Um, So they kind of just go along, trying to do the best that they can, and hopefully, just hopefully at the end of the day, the, the good they've done outweighs the bad. And maybe, just maybe, Allah will allow them to come into paradise, but they they really can't know for certain. It's kind of just a hope, and maybe one day this will happen, but they really can't be certain what will happen in the end. They serve a God who they will self-admittedly say cannot be known personally, Um, and it's a God with whom they cannot reconcile. He's irreconcilable, unlike our God. And it kind of makes sense, right? If we think about it in human standards, um, reconciliation, if there's an offense made, the one who is offended must do the, recon- the reconciling. So I want to do a quick example. Um, Brian, come on up, and Tyler. You guys didn't know I was going to call you up here, but you're the volunteers. Um, so in this example, let's just say these guys are buddies from high school. Um, they both end up going to college together, and um, it turns out Brian's pretty cool. Um, he's he's the big man on campus, and um, it also turns out that Tyler's pretty jealous of that. Um, he's having a hard time handling that Brian's getting all this attention and everyone kind of likes him. So um, Tyler just starts kind of spreading some rumors about Brian. Um, they. They start small, just kind of little white lies, um, things that make Brian look kind of silly. And um, But as it goes, it kind of feels good. And um, Tyler just kind of starts growing these rumors and saying worse and worse things about Brian. And the next thing you know, um, Tyler's pretty much trashed Brian's reputation on campus. Um, he's spread some pretty big stories that uh, people start to believe and they start to get this picture of Brian Um, These guys used to be friends, Um, but as as time goes on, their relationship grows apart. Um, And finally, uh, Brian hears that Tyler's been saying all this about him over there, and Tyler hears that Brian heard, um, and Tyler, being a soft-hearted guy, instantly feels horrible. Um, He knows that he is guilty, he knows what he's done, Um, but at that moment, there is nothing Tyler can do to fix this relationship. He is guilty. He is laid bare before Brian. Um, But there is nothing he can do to fix this relationship. So only through reconciliation by the offended party can this relationship be made right. Brian has to be the one to go and forgive Tyler and fix this relationship. So you guys can go ahead and hug and then sit down. (laughs) All right. (laughs) That's a good hug. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Um, But this is us. We have deeply offended God, and that was a G-rated example, but um, add a multiplier of a couple million to what we've done, and this is how badly we've offended God. This is how badly we've treated God. And it's not only that, but we've offended the one who is perfect. He's the one who's completely holy, and we've spat in his face. We've talked trash about him behind his back. As a spouse, we've cheated on him, we've lied to him, we've lied about him, we've walked right past him and pretended he's not even there when we're with our cool friends. We've disobeyed him, we've done things we know that he hates. The list could go on and on and on of ways we've completely blasphemed God the ways we've sinned against him. But Christianity is completely different from all these other world religions. We worship the God who not only set the standard of obedience, and any disobedience was deserving of death. He not only knew we would run to this disobedience, breaking our relationship with him. He's not only the sole being who was perfect, not only the party who's been deeply offended in this relationship, mistreated, he is the one who stands ready to forgive, to restore our relationship with him. He is the one who seeks us out and does the act of reconciliation. Let me say that again. He is the one who stands ready to forgive, to restore our relationship, and he's the one who seeks us out and seeks reconciliation with us. He sent his own son to restore this broken relationship between him and us. And the guilt was 100% ours. So usually in an earthly uh, situation, when there's a problem, both parties carry some weight of the guilt, right? It's a little bit this person's fault. It's a little bit that person's fault. And, you know, they come together and they kind of, there's some give and take. And they, they work things out and they um, each forgive each other a little bit. And they, they figure it out both God it is totally and completely our fault. We are 100% the guilty party. But through Christ God still reconciled us to himself being completely innocent of any wrongdoing. But if we pause for just a moment, it kind of begs the question of how? How did a perfectly just and holy God just forgive us like that? How are our sins not completely damning to us? So the answer is right there in verse 19. It says, he doesn't count our trespasses against us. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told he blots our sins out completely. So it's not as if our sin is okay with God and he'll just kind of live with it still being present. We're told that he paid for our sin. He paid for every bit of it. And he got rid of it completely. It's as if our sin does not even exist anymore. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, his righteousness, his perfection, his holiness and cleanness, it is all imputed to us. So imputed means it is credited to us. It is credited to us as if we were the ones who lived that life. Isn't that amazing? When God looks at us, he sees us not as we are and as we were. He doesn't see this filthy, dirty, ugly mess of a person, but he sees Jesus' righteous life. He sees the perfection of the life that Christ lived given to us, assigned to us. So he restored our relationship with him and gave us a right standing because of what Christ did. And he cancels the record of our sins by nailing it to the cross. We read in Colossians two thirteen to 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And again, this is shocking and offensive to people. And if not shocking and offensive, then it's completely foolish. It just makes no sense at all. And people do not buy that through uh, Christ dying on the cross, our debts can just be canceled for him paying for it barring a change of heart from the Holy Spirit, our hearts are too hard to wrap our minds around this. That we can be made right with God because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Our sin, just gone, wiped out. So, check out this progression that we see in the Bible. We are born as those under sin, thanks to Adam as our figurehead. The the first human who committed sin and um, tainted us for all time and because of our personal sin we are cut off from God we're separated according to Ephesians 2 says having no hope and without God in the world so it's a we're pretty helpless and desperate right there we are without God and no hope Um, and even worse there's this giant wall between us and God, called the law. It says, "We have no way of getting to the other side where God is. We're completely out of luck, but through the blood of Christ, it says, God tore down the wall of hostility and made a way to be close to Him, to be in a relationship with Him, thereby killing the hostility and offering us peace with the Father ultimate peace that will last forever. And he does this through the Holy Spirit. So what does this necessarily lead to in the believer who's been forgiven? Well, praise and worship of God and thankfulness to him to start with. It leads us to join the psalmist in Psalm 106 that we've um, read for our call to worship and recognize that we're sinners and that we've committed iniquity and wickedness but that for his name's sake, God has saved us. It leads us to joyously give thanks to God and say again, like at the end of that same Psalm, the one we read this morning, he says, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. We're those who have been reconciled to God, and we bless his holy name because of this. And also it leads us to our third point. As ones who are reconciled, who are made right with God, we're given a ministry of reconciliation. When we as Christians ask ourselves why we're here on earth, the answer is right there in front of us in this verse. So if we have the proper view of heaven and the proper view of earth, we, like Paul, quickly realize that it is far better to depart and be with Christ. So we think it would be better to be saved and then go right to God and into um, this life. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't save us and take us away right on the spot. He didn't do that with Paul, and he doesn't do that with us either. He's got a purpose for leaving us here on this earth. We are living billboards for God's brand. We're here to shine as bright lights that show off his glory and show the glory of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We're to go and tell, hey, look at what God has done for me. Just look at who I was before. And look at what God has done with me. Even a no-good, completely helpless sinner like me, He has redeemed me and given me this great joy, given me a hope that I never had before, given me this promise of new life that's changed my desires in me, from living for myself to and the things of the world to my desires being rooted in Him, and my desires uh, being things that bring eternal joy. Can't you see this joy on my face? Even though my life might be hard right now, I have this deep-seated joy that the world can't touch. We've got to live this. We've got to believe this in our lives and show it to people around us. So often when people ask the question, what do you do, we're quick to spout off how we get paid, right? I'm, I'm a construction worker. I'm a nurse, I'm a stay-at-home mom, I'm an X, Y, Z, and we're usually pretty proud of what we do, right? But what if, what if we saw our real profession for what it truly is, that we're here to tell sinners how they can be reconciled to God? It'd be quite a gateway into sharing the gospel if we answered the question of what do you do with I tell people how they can be reconciled to God and saved from their sin. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure I actually prescribe leading a conversation with that, but um, it would definitely make the conversation go one of two ways. Um, (laughs) We would either go straight into sharing the gospel with them, or the conversation would be over right then and there, and they would move on to something else. We wouldn't waste our time making meaningless small talk, right? Um, But what if we rightly saw that as our biggest and most important purpose in this life, the ministry of reconciliation? We must see ourselves as those who are saved to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is why believers are left on earth for the ministry of reconciliation. Um, Quick side note here. I'll try not to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I was thinking of this as I was um, writing this sermon. What a calling this is for us to be reconciled to each other as well, right? If we've been forgiven by the perfect God of this universe for an eternal weight of sins for which we could never hope to pay, how in the world can we refuse to forgive someone for sins against us? How can we not seek out bringing restoration to our own broken relationships? We have to see ourselves rightly as the sinful woman in Luke 7, who had been forgiven much and therefore loved much. We're all those who have been forgiven much, more than we could ever imagine. So if you have a broken relationship with someone in your life, friend, seek reconciliation. Again, This is a living testimony to the world around us, either in the good sense that we realize how much God has forgiven us, hence we're willing to overlook some wrongs that are done to us in a relationship, even if we think it's a huge deal, that we recognize that it's nothing in comparison to how much God has forgiven us. Or it's a testimony in the negative sense, that we're self-righteous hypocrites, who say we've been forgiven by God but refuse to forgive others. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you today. If you have a broken relationship, whether in your family, in the church, with a neighbor, or with anyone else, do everything in your power to reconcile this relationship. This gives glory to God and makes his name shine bright amongst the people around us. It points them towards the reconciliation we've received from God through Jesus. It's an opportunity to share both in word and deed the forgiveness that God offers. And last point, we see that there's a human element in the reconciliation to God. The sinner has a responsibility in this. In verse 20, Paul says, We implore you on behalf of Christ." be reconciled to God." So this reconciliation isn't something that happens without our consent and we just wake up as new creations. The sinner must in faith receive Christ as Lord and Savior and turn from his sin. Repentance must take place. A denial of our sin And our old self is essential to be a new creation in Christ. So Paul begs of these Corinthians to receive the forgiveness that God is offering. And if you're here today and you don't know this reconciliation yourself, I myself want to plead with you not to go any longer as an enemy of God. Be reconciled to God. Repenting of your sin and turning to God for forgiveness through Christ is the best decision you could ever make. Without Christ, your life, no matter how significant it seems, or doesn't seem maybe, is one that ultimately will end in death and eternal suffering, which will never be long enough to pay for the sins you've committed. Sorry if that sounds harsh, but it's true. The most loving thing I can possibly say today to you is this truth. But we have an offer of escape. You have an offer of escape. You have an offer to put your trust in Jesus. You have hope. But you must die to yourself, and he will raise you up as his child. So if you feel God calling you to a relationship with him, stop resisting. Turn to Jesus. Give him your life. God will reconcile you to himself. He is standing waiting as the loving father who we read about in the parable about the prodigal son. The son ran away, squandered all the father's inheritance, and long story short, ends up um, crawling his way back to the father. And the father sees him a long way off, and he doesn't um, push him away. He goes running down the road after him. He takes him into his loving arms, and it says he um, kisses him, glad to welcome him back into his house. And this is us. Our Father is glad to welcome us back into our house. No, no, no matter how badly we've treated him, no matter how badly we've squandered the gifts he's given us up until now, he stands ready to forgive and welcome us into his house for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are willing to reconcile with us. God, we thank you that you even seek us out, that you don't leave us out to dry as we deserve, God. But we thank you that you welcome us into a relationship with you. We thank you that you make us born again into an eternal righteousness with you, God. We thank you for sending Christ to die for us. and It's in him we give all worship and praise and glory We pray that our lives would reflect that. We pray that we would um, take up the ministry of reconciliation in our lives, that we would show the love that you've given to us, that we would recognize how sinful we were, but what you've done to us, God. We pray that we would um, live out the new creations that we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.